The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. I'd like to talk tonight on happiness. And the title of the talk is uh, Five Kinds of Happiness, Five Different Kinds of Happiness. Try to unpack it a little bit. Um, you've heard me uh, quote the Buddha many times, where the, or, or the Dalai Lama rather, where he said, the purpose of life is to be happy. That's really such a strong statement. You know, the purpose of life is to be happy. So I want to invite you to contemplate for just a minute, um, either by yourselves or if you want to talk to your neighbor about it. What does that mean? What does it mean to be happy? What is happiness anyway? The purpose of life is to be that, whatever that happiness is. What do you think? Just reflecting for a minute, what does the Dalai Lama mean? What is happiness? You want to talk to your partners, your neighbors, or no? Hmm? Clearly, I have not given you enough time for that. <laughs> um, be sure you know the name of the person you just spoke to. <laughs> um, anyone want to offer anything? What you know? What does the Dalai Lama mean? The purpose of life? What is happiness? What is it? Yeah, anybody want to toss anything out? This, that we all have the seeds, yeah. But what does that mean? What is, there, what is happiness? How about the opposite of suffering? The opposite of suffering, okay. I'm just asking, really, um, we're not trying to answer the question, really. We're just sort of reflecting. I, I, I want to invite us to kind of throw out a few thoughts about it and sort of see in the course of our inquiry over the evening to kind of see where they land. Um, you know, how we can, the Buddha invites us to, uh, to uh, read and study, he invites us to reflect, he invites us to contemplate. You know, so just, you know, really working with the reflection and the contemplation piece, just how does, how does this work and where, um, where are your, where's your inquiry, you know? So I just want to sort of see from the group. So, what? A, freedom. freedom, okay. Yes, David, did, what? Being part of a web of relationships, um, okay. Contentment, equanimity, inner well-being. What is it, gratitude? Being of service, enjoying, James Taylor and Julie Convisser enjoying the passage of time. <laughs> Both of you together doing that, okay. What I'd, what I'd invite you to do is to, a couple of things as you, as you uh, kind of engage with uh, the talk tonight. One is to kind of take whatever your 
sense is of happiness at the moment and sort of see if it fits anywhere. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, certainly not going to be exhaustive in discussing happiness in the next 34 minutes. Um, but to see if it fits anywhere. So that's one thing. And the other is to reflect as, um, as I kind of go through uh, what, I'll, what I'm calling five kinds of happiness, which is sort of an absurd title, isn't it? You know, five, there are only five. There are only five. Um, but to kind of see, uh, as you reflect for yourself, um, where, where is there an interesting inquiry for you? Where it, and I did it a little bit in the, in the meditation, you know, where is it uh, puzzling or harder or either harder because, you know, sometimes people will say, I can't even feel my body, much less find any happiness there. Um, or, you know, whenever I think about so-and-so or, or such and such a thing happening in the world, I just get so mad that I can't, you know, that I can't be happy or something like that. So it's difficult either because I don't find any happiness there, or it could be difficult because I find so much apparent happiness there that I can't go anywhere else. You know, I can't, I can't think about, I can't do, I can't explore anything else. So just look to see where is your own mm, inquiry? Where's your own, if you will? kind of leading edge on it. And don't imagine that it's, you know, sort of like as I go along, it's like, well, it's one of the higher states. Because it may not be that sometimes we, we are actually quite good at some of the higher states, I'll talk about that, of happiness, and actually not so good in ways that cause us real problems in some of the kind of more mundane, the mundane, more mundane places of happiness. So really invite you to kind of just sort of cook with it a little bit. And for each of you as you leave tonight, to have kind of a different, um, a, a different little piece that you will take home and reflect on a little bit more. Um, so um, happiness. <laughs> My first sentence is, happiness, it depends. <laughs> Um, there really are lots of different ways, as you know, just even from what you've just offered here, lots of different ways of thinking about it and cultivating a quality of happiness. Um, the Buddha t talked about and taught about states of happiness um, as they arise in the mind. Um, so all of the, virtually all of the Buddha's teachings have to do with the happiness as a capacity of mind. Um, uh, he said that um, others are limited, the, the, the limited kinds of happiness are the ones that are dependent on something, uh, often dependent on some kind of sensory or um, fleeting kind of condition, but that the happiness of the mind is not dependent. And so he taught primarily about that happiness that is not dependent. Um, but he also taught, um, well, he taught um, largely, he taught some other ways that are, that are a bit more dependent. And he also assumed a kind of happiness that um, uh, we talk about a lot more in our modern world that the Buddha actually didn't teach about at all. 
um, he sort of assumed that kind of happiness. I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, sometimes when I hear teachers speak about the Buddha's ultimate teachings, you know, the ultimate happiness, the happiness that is not dependent on conditions, they can seem to denigrate the lesser kinds of happiness. I know I've told you one time about Rodney Smith talking about a, a monastic who turned his back one time on a sunset because it was simply sensory happiness and he didn't really want to engage in anything that was so mundane. Rodney's comment was that there were some things he didn't understand very well. Um, but, but especially, you know, sometimes we can um, hear about... Uh, people, uh, teachers who have achieved really very high states of uh, practice, um, really um, enlightened or nearly, en apparently enlightened or nearly enlightened teachers who actually are not very good at some of the more mundane kinds of happiness and indeed become overwhelmed with some of them. There have been uh, a few cases in the news lately about teachers, very, very prominent teachers who have become snared in um, uh, power dynamics or sexual abuse dynamics um, in ways that, you know, you go, what is happening here? Because here are these people who are like so advanced spiritually, but really are children, you know, reaching in the candy jar around power or money or fame or sex. You know, it's like, what is happening here? And what's happening is that um, you can have really a great deal of skill at one kind of happiness and not so much at another kind. And because the Buddha didn't teach at some of the more mundane levels, it's possible for someone to be very advanced spiritually um, and really uh, basically an immature child at some of the other levels. Um, so it, it can be helpful to kind of have that kind of perspective, at least it is for me, to have that kind of perspective. Part of the challenge, I think, is for us to both personally and with respect to other people have the capacity to diagnose happiness or, if you will, problems of happiness well. You know, it's so wonderful, isn't it? I, you know, when I take my car into the mechanic and say, okay, what's wrong? or the doctor, or my husband is a great cook, and I'll give him the soup. I say, What's, you know, what does it need? So somebody who can really kind of taste things or look at things and diagnose at what level, you know, wh where, what's needed, and then can, out of this whole uh, assortment of tools, whether it's a doctor with this whole assortment of tools, or a mechanic with this whole assortment of tools, or a cook with this whole assortment of tools and spices and things to add or, you know, whatever, can choose what's needed here. And so happiness is really much the same way. The challenge for us is to be able to diagnose at what level, if you will, our problem, if we, you know, if we want to think of it that way, resides, so that we can see where where there's some inquiry that might be useful. Um, and, and in that sense, it doesn't really matter. You know, if you take it into the mechanic, it doesn't really matter whether it's, you know, um, 
I don't know enough about mechanics to be able to give you examples, whether it's this thing or that thing, um, whether it's something minor or something major in, in, in that sense. What matters is whether or not someone can actually diagnose it correctly. And it's not a fault or a problem if it's some sort of really basic, you know, basic fundamental issue. Um, the important thing is being able to see it clearly and work with that well. So the first level of happiness um, that um, I actually we walked through it a little bit in the guided meditation is the ordinary level, and the Buddha didn't talk about this so much other than to point out its limitations, is the ordinary level of sensory pleasure, sensory delight. Um, the sights and sounds and tastes, sensations, um, that bring us into balance. The goodness, if you will. The goodness of a good bowl of soup that brings us into balance, that allows our body to function well. Just those ordinary goodnesses. Um, so the first level is really that, that level. And... Um, it's really most of what our modern world speaks about. I picked up this book um, in uh, Barnes & Noble when I was shopping at Christmas time and I couldn't resist because it's like the secret of happiness. Yes, secret of happiness. Knowing in my cynical little mind that it really wasn't going to say much and surely, uh, sure enough, it didn't. Um, <laughs> First of all, if you look at, you know, the people on the cover, they are all deliriously happy, you know. It's just like, oh, they're just, they're just grinning and they're laughing and they're just having the most fun time and it's so wonderful. And the pursuit of happiness is not as hard as you may think. That's one of the, that's one of the topics. And um, even there's, there's a little teensy bit about the Buddha and mindfulness and, but even there, basically, they're, they're basically talking about mindfulness as a way to um, the kind of happiness that you get if you eat a good bowl of soup. Um, which is actually not a problem unless you imagine that that's all there is. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, most of our popular uh, literature really does kind of imagine that's all there is. Let me find it. I found a couple other things here. This was in, I, um, this was in my uh, newspaper one Sunday morning. It's a Target ad. I don't know if you can see it, but the, the headline is, Tech Brings Joy. <laughs> you know, so unless you kind of imagine that it's really, you know, much of what this kind of um, a narrative is, is actually inflating that kind of happiness beyond what it really can do. Um, and so if you really buy it, I don't suppose anybody, well, I suppose people do, don't they? You know, tech brings joy. If you really buy that that's the case, then you're always going to be unable to actually enjoy your tech or enjoy your good bowl of soup or enjoy your kitty or enjoy the sunset 
or delight in the fact that it was 47 today and not 11. You know, I thought I had just died and gone to heaven. I went out and I walked and it was just like, this is so great, it's so balmy out, it's so wonderful. Um, but, but, to, but to really allow ourselves to delight in that um, is actually, when the Buddha didn't, he talked about the limitations of delight, but he, he didn't mean to throw the baby out with the bath. He meant only, um, I think it's, um, can't rem- I think it's Ajahn Chah, I can't remember if it's Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Sumedho, who used the metaphor of uh, banana. And he said, you know, to, to really, cu- the banana needs to grow inside the peel, you know. Um, it needs to develop, it needs that kind of support in order to grow well. But you don't eat the peel when, you know, when it has grown well, then you can let that go and, and, and go on to what's more, more internal. And the Buddha tended not to talk about the banana peel. Um, or he uh, primarily talked about the limitations of the banana peel. Fair enough. But we can misunderstand the teachings and imagine that therefore there's something defective or deficient about that kind of happiness, which there isn't. Uh, Unless one of two things happens. Either we cling to it and we imagine that, you know, that is going to be some kind of our ultimate salvation or alternately, unless we find it difficult to experience it. And that is more common than you might think. And for many of us, there's a challenge in that way. Those of us who've experienced trauma of some sort in particular can find it very difficult to let go of vigilance and to just relax and really take in, in a bodily sense, the goodness of life. You know, so for those of us who have that kind of experience, that kind of a practice is a crucial and important practice. Because otherwise what we're doing is we're cultivating our spiritual practice. We might get really, really good at, say, concentration or or serenity, but we're using it as a weapon to kind of keep ourselves away from certain kinds of experience. And, the, and, and find ourselves actually unable to engage. Somebody mentioned relationships, maybe unable to engage in relationship well or unable to engage in the experience of a sunset really well. Yeah. You know. So for many of us, practice at that very foundational level, um, even though the Buddha kind of, you have to kind of look for it and understand where he's talking about it, didn't really talk about that much. Um, but for many of us, practice at that very foundational level is really important. And you'll notice that in the meditation tonight, I really pointed to qualities of ease, qualities of goodness. Um, you know, because otherwise we can kind of spend all of our time meditating just kind of white-knuckling it, struggling. I talked about that a little bit last week just kind of struggling, you know, and then we kind of get mad at ourselves because we can't stay with it, but we can't, it's like eating medicine, you know, you can't stay with it because it's too hard. It's not, it's not sweet enough, it's not nourishing enough. And Siddhartha, um, uh, that was his great discovery when Sujata uh, came to him, he was near death, and she came to him and she brought him, bo- he, he had vowed not to eat. And he, she brought him the bowl of milk rice. 
And he said, well, you know, he said, it doesn't do me any good to have my brain and my body falling apart. I can't reflect, I can't practice. Um, so it doesn't do me any good. I need to eat. I need to take in this nourishment. Uh, I need to feed the body. So he saw that as part of the middle way. The second kind of happiness is um, what Ayakima calls the bliss of blamelessness or morality. And some of you mentioned that as we were going around earlier. Sila, you know. The... the um, the happiness that comes from, if you will, behaving well and living well uh, in a way that is consistent with our deepest knowledge about how we are to be. Um, um, the Buddha spoke often of the precepts. Um, uh, you know, what he, talk, he talked about just all kinds of different ways of wise living and that our, our capacity to meditate and reach some of the higher states of concentration will be limited to the extent that we are not fully practicing the precepts. That we can't do a shortcut. You know, we can't bounce over them. We can't engage in um, improper speech or improper action um, and expect to be happy. It's part of the Buddhist teaching. Those of you who have been around for a while have heard me many times. I used the old example now. Some of you won't even have seen it. But when The Sopranos was on, it just used to you know, crack me up um, that Tony Soprano was trying to be happy. He's in therapy. He's you know, working with a therapist and he's trying to be happy when he is violating in massive ways every single one of the precepts. He's murdering people and he's, you know, engaging in sexual misconduct and he's cheating people and he's, you know, doing all kinds of really inappropriate things and then he thinks he can be happy, you know. And even for that matter, I only watched the program for a few times because I was like, I don't think so. And, um, but, but it, you know, I, I think that was sort of part of the deal, like the program was sort of presenting it like maybe that's possible, you know, you can go to therapy, you know, these therapists who are, can work in miracles and can help somebody violate fundamental laws of human nature um, and still have, make it work. So, uh, the, you know, what Ayakima again calls the bliss of blamelessness. And I read to you last week the quote from the Buddha where he's teaching his son and he said, You're the, the, you know, you need to reflect before you do something. Is this for my affliction or the affliction of others? You need to reflect while you're doing something. Is this causing affliction to me or affliction to others? Is this action of mind, my mind, my speech, or my action, this behavior, causing affliction to myself or others? And after I've done something, is this uh, uh, mental action, speech action, action action, causing affliction? And so to reflect constantly, to evaluate how we're doing with respect 
to our behavior and morality and our relationships with ourselves and with other people. Um, Laura spoke earlier about self-compassion and that's bringing some of these precepts to bear uh, with kindness and care for ourselves uh, along with others. You know. Ajahn Chah says, if we were to dye a piece of cloth, we'd have to wash it first. But most people don't do that. Without looking at the cloth, they dip it into the dye right away. If the cloth is dirty, dyeing it makes it come out even worse than before. Think about it, he says. And he's talking here about the precepts, you know, that if we want, you know, if we have a, a cloth that's kind of contaminated, if you will, with violations of the precepts, uh, where we're killing and we're uh, in, engaging in harmful speech um, and we're stealing, we're taking things that aren't ours um, and that haven't been freely given, we're engaging in sexual misconduct, we're becoming intoxicated. Um, when we're engaging in these behaviors, um, we're trying to die, and then, and then doing our spiritual practice, we're imagining that we can be happy with a spiritual practice, but we're dying, you know, we're actually uh, dying the cloth before we're washing it. We can also turn the guidelines, the bliss of blamelessness against ourselves by um, using them as uh, weapons, if you will, against ourselves. And that's not how the Buddha intended those practices. They're intended to be guidelines, investigation. How's it going? How's it working for you? Uh, not as a weapon, but as, a, as an aspect of discernment. You know? Is there some way that I'm not happy because I'm really violating some one of these precepts. One that's uh, another level, another kind of happiness is the happiness of um, cultivating mind states that are free of greed and hatred and delusion. Um, one of the ways of doing that is through the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, joy in the goodness or happiness of others, the accomplishments and the spiritual accomplishments in particular of others, and equanimity. Um, or what are called the paramitas or the paramis, um, the um, qualities of mind and heart that the Buddha taught. Um, the paramis themselves, the Buddha didn't ever kind of organize them himself into the 10 paramis that we have now, but he taught very specifically about those uh, qualities of generosity and virtue and re renunciation or letting go, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, kindness, equanimity. You'll hear that some of those overlap with the four Brahma Viharas. Um, so actively cultivating a kind of happiness that is actively cultivating qualities of mind and heart that are free from the toxins of greed and hatred and delusion. Uh, really can be quite challenging in these days where so much of our public discourse is, is, is filled with greed and hatred and delusion. You know, so to really cultivate these qualities of mind and heart.
Um, we learn to stop drinking, if you will, those mental poisons of greed and hatred and delusion. Um, Alice in Wonderland, you've heard me say this quote before. She said, if you continue, as she was going through and looking at all the little bottles, she said, hmm, poison. And she's musing and she says, if you continue to drink daily a little bit of poison, it's bound to affect you sooner or later, you know. That if we, you know, even a little bit of greed, a little bit of hatred, a little bit of ignorance, if we continue to engage in our minds in those qualities, the Buddha is saying, you're not going to be happy. You know. It's true, isn't it? You know, uh, you know I, when I was a, working as a therapist, I used to uh, remind people that even a murderer thinks that that will be a good thing. You know, that that quality of hatred will, will lead to some kind of good outcome. You know, if you continue to drink daily of a bottle marked poison, you know, and, and so the, uh, the teaching that the Buddha is offering about happiness is that that's not true, you know. That, that if you engage in animosity, if you engage in um, hatred of any little or big amount, you won't be happy. So a deeper kind of happiness. You can see that, you know, some of these... Um, kind of more superficial uh, uh, ways of talking about happiness, while they're not wrong, they actually stop there. You know, you get to the end of the book and, and it's sort of like, okay, that's all I got. But so far we're actually on two layers, two levels, that are, that are deeper than, um, than those layers. Not because those layers are wrong, but because they're just more limited. We're um, going to offer, I mentioned this last week, um, we're going to offer in the springtime, or sometime later than now, we're not sure exactly when, um, a course or a series, you know, when we do sometimes series on Tuesday nights, we're going to offer a series on those paramis, those ten qualities that I um, described. And one of the lovely things about the paramis and these qualities of, of loving kindness and compassion and, and uh, joy and equanimity, sympathetic joy and equanimity, is that they can be practiced any moment of the night or day. You know, they don't require us to be sitting on our cushion. Um, so they're very practical qualities of mind and heart that we can cultivate um, and that will allow us to kind of settle into deeper and deeper uh, qualities of happiness. So long as we are slaves to the dissatisfactions and frustrations that arise from the confusion that rules our minds, it will be just futile to tell ourselves I am happy over and over. The search for happiness is not about looking at life through rose-colored glasses or blinding oneself to the pain and imperfection of the world. Nor is happiness a state of exaltation to be perpetuated at all costs. It is the purging of mental toxins 
such as hatred and obsession that literally poison the mind. It is also about learning how to put things in perspective and reduce the gap between appearances and reality. And that's a quote from Matthew Ricard um, in his book entitled Happiness. Again, um, reading that book, it's important to know that Matthew is talking about a particular quality of happiness so that otherwise we can kind of overlook some of the more basic kinds and think that they really aren't important. Um, the fourth kind of happiness I referred also um, to also in the meditation is the happiness of concentration. Um, um, what did uh, Ayakima, I think she talks about it as a mind that doesn't turn to jello every time, you know, you know, when something difficult happens. You know, that, that, that we have a mind that is, can actually be stable and settled. And I, in the meditation, uh, in the guidance, um, I told you about the Buddha's metaphors uh, that show up where he talks about either the, the post, uh, you know, a bridge that's across a raging stream and that there's a post in the middle of the stream that holds that bridge up and concentration and samadhi and tranquility, the capacity to kind of put our minds someplace and have them stay there is a kind of happiness. Or um, another metaphor that he uses is a post by the ocean. Tanisaro speaks of that. He has a, um, an essay um, entitled A Post by the Ocean. And um, he speaks about you know, this idea of this sort of deeply um, settled post that's at the edge of the ocean, and so the hurricanes come, but the post is is unfazed by it. I spent some time down at uh, the Outer Banks and Jeanette's pier that has been destroyed any number of times by hurricanes. They finally, they put in like these concrete posts, you know. Um, so that even those, because they're fabricated, are limited, but the Buddha is, is inviting us to cultivate qualities of concentration um, that enable us to be stable no matter what. Here's one of the qualities that I was referring to earlier that sometimes we have, we know teachers who have profound capacities for concentration, but when it comes to somebody who challenges their authority or a very pretty girl, um, uh, or a lot of money really kind of lose their balance so that they haven't really kind of cultivated some of the more basic kinds of happiness, the more basic kinds of balance. We'll skip that story. When the concentration has been constant, this is Ayakima, has been constant for some time, the mind becomes very quiet and so does the body. Every single moment of concentration is a moment of purification. The defilements that beset us, causing our unhappiness and difficulties, are momentarily laid aside. The more often we lay them aside, the less habitual they become. The more often we can concentrate, the more often we are without them. Having a pure, bright mind then becomes our second nature. Um, and then the fifth kind of happiness is the happiness we talk about most often. The happiness of mindfulness. 
It's what we practice most often in our meditation practice. Um, um, and the happiness of seeing clearly, it's the happiness of seeing clearly what is. And it leads to insight into the three characteristics where we actually see clearly that things are impermanent. Sometimes the, they're pleasant. My 47 degree day, sometimes they're not so pleasant. Two days ago when it was less than that. And they're not under our control. And mindfulness is the capacity to not only see that, but to rest in it. To really be able to live in the fluidity and the process of life without needing it to be some particular way. I was talking with someone recently who actually was, had a very wise view about something that they were trying to pound into somebody else's head. <laughs> and making uh, themselves and everybody else quite miserable about it all. <laughs> you know, so that's a misunderstanding of mindfulness. It's an attachment to view. Insisting that I know what's right and it has to be like this. And we've all had moments where we see clearly. We really have all, all had moments. Um, I read to you some of the uh, moments that Thomas Merton had where, you know, everything just fell away and he saw the luminous nature of life and the whole process nature of life. Um, I read to you a little bit last week of um, Father Gregory Boyle, who is incredibly inspiring in the same way where he can see people's glorious beauty. This is a man who's working with some of the worst gangs in the world. He has buried 220 people who has the most incredible quality of presence and listening and happiness and delight in his work. If you haven't read his books, they're great bedtime reading. They're awesome. So, uh, in this last kind of happiness, we see that we're not separate. We see that everything and everyone is illuminated and all is fundamentally well. Here our challenge is to love everything and everyone. So, the invitation I would give you as we leave um, is to uh, inquire, where's your work? And it's not necessarily at, you know, level five. You know, where's your work? And to maybe pick something and practice with it a little bit. How can I cultivate, if it's the Brahma Viharas, if it's level three, how can I cultivate a little more kindness? I can be kind to other people, but not to myself. Uh, oh. 
if it's at level two. My speech, mm, my speech isn't so hot. Or what I listen to, what I read, is really a poison. Uh, maybe I need to, to change that a little bit. So look to see. And I'll end um, with what? I think I'll end with a poem. Yes, We Can Talk by Mark Nepo. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And what can churn at all, at all that goes wrong. But then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. Hmm. I think somebody started with that tonight, didn't they? Water every living seed. I think Tom, you mentioned that, huh? Water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone, but seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it is a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. So the Dhammapada, this is the Buddha, he says, look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, no the joy of the way. So, enjoy your way. Blessings. <laughs>